Welcome to the best of all time, Joys of Binge Reading, the show for everyone who got to the end of a great book and wanted to read the next installment. We're celebrating reaching our 200th episode with the special edition of the best of all time on binge reading, the top 10 most listened to episodes over our last four years. First, let me wish everyone a prosperous and peaceful 2022. We surely need it after the disruptions we've all faced in 2021. I'm recording this on Christmas Eve 2021 after a year of pandemic that's meant many of you will have spent a lot more time at home with time to read books, of course, more so perhaps than is usual for you. We'll be podcasting this in mid-January, like all our podcasts on Tuesday here in New Zealand, Monday for the Northern Hemisphere, January 18th. We're celebrating this 200th episode milestone by casting an eye back and paying tribute to the authors who you have listened to the most over the last four years and bringing them back to your attention if you haven't discovered them already. It's worth delving into our backlist further. There's lots of gems there. As is characteristic, it seems, of our binge reading audience, we've once again got a wonderful mix of genres and nationalities, from Australia to the US, from the UK to New Zealand amongst our selection. Our best of all time top ranking shows include Contemporary Mysteries from Martin Walker, Anne Hilleman, J.A. Jance and S.W. Hubbard, Hazel Gaynor's best-selling historicals, historical mysteries from Deanna Rayborn and L.B. Hathaway, international thrillers from Michael Robotham, Lucinda Brandt's dramatic 18th century historical romances, and Fiona Valpy's World War II romances. J.A. Jantz appeared in our Best of 2021 episode, and Martin Walker, Michael Robotham, Lucinda Brandt and Anne Hilleman we're all there in the best of 2020, but I've tried to select different sections so there's no duplication with the shows. And I was thrilled to see that our own best of 2020 episode, the first time we've done one of those annual roundups, was also there in the top 10. So I do get the idea that you enjoy hearing these composite shows. As I've explained before, I'm not into picking favourites because I value every author we have on the show. As usual, our selection is based on the episodes you chose to listen to and the number of downloads each one received. So you, our listeners, are the ones making the choice with your ears. We've taken the estimates from August 2018 to November 30, 2021, so we have time to put it all together for a January release. In this show, we play excerpts from each of the top 10 episodes. So instead of having just two voices on the show, you'll be hearing from a dozen. And as usual, if any of these snippets spark your interest and they are from a show you've missed out on, there are links in the show notes to make it easy for you to find them and tune in. So there'll be plenty of new authors to keep you going over the holiday break. The show notes for this episode can be found on thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page. The Best of All Time will run for the second two weeks of January 2022. In the first week of February, we'll be launching our new episodes for 2022 with another first for Binge Reading, our first chat with an author of a non-fiction book. Australian broadcaster Kate Langbrook's Ciao Bella 
celebrates the adventure her family of six embarked on in going to Italy for a year. It's about having a dream and living it. And goodness knows, after our last year, we certainly need to be holding on to our dreams. You won't be disappointed by Kate's deliciously funny and inspiring memoir about moving to Italy with her family to seek La Dolce Vita. And the fact that they got caught in a COVID lockdown, well, that's a full other story. I've been considering adding the occasional non-fiction book to our choices for some time. A recent poll of our listeners showed us that you liked the idea, so just every now and then we'll be adding in the occasional non-fiction book that catches my eye or takes my fancy. Now, just before we get to the main business, a wonderful surprise. We've got a giveaway draw for January, three ebook copies every week given away of my three holiday novellas book bundle, a mix of mystery and Christmas romance set in historic New York, Hawaii and California. They're books four, six and eight in the Of Gold and Blood Mystery series. Enter the draw on our website, thejoysofbingereading.com or on our Binge Reading Facebook page and be in to win one of three copies going to Lucky Readers every week in January. Now we've got all the housekeeping out of the way, here's our show, launching the best of all time Binge Reading lineup to celebrate our 200th episode. Martin Walker's Bruno, the French police chief at the heart of his best-selling Perigord mystery series, is everyone's idea of an ideal cop, as well as the town's most eligible bachelor. Martin himself is a talented host with an international award-winning cookbook in his name. But before he turned to both cookbooks and fiction, he had a stellar career in journalism, haunting the world's corridors of power, reporting from Moscow during Perestroika and from President Bill Clinton's Washington for top newspapers. He's hugely popular in Germany, where a TV series about Bruno is in production and where he regularly pre-pandemic, went on book tours. Here he is talking about his international audience. On my novels, I was invited to dinner with the founder of the company, an old man called Daniel Kale. His son has now taken over. And Daniel at dinner said, well, Martin, we're going to be behind you, but you have to be behind us. That means I'd like you to promise me this evening you will do at least two weeks book tour every year in Germany. And I said, well, okay, but, but why is that so important? He said, because in, in Germany, they don't just want to read, they want to see him, they want and they want to smell it. They want to really feel what an author is like. And it turns out that it's a huge, in Germany, there is this huge tradition of, of authors' readings. And partly because they have fixed prices on all book sales, every small town in Germany has its own bookstore. And it acts like a kind of a cultural sentiment. It brings in authors on a regular basis for readings. And so this last tour I did in October, I actually did my 500th reading in German language countries, Germany, Austria, Switzerland. And it's, um, and we've worked out something like over 40,000 people have actually, you know, attended live these events. And so, uh, that 
an, an extraordinary kind of loyalty base, I think, and it's uh, and I, I I rather enjoy it, partly because I believe in we should all have fun. So sometimes I will sing and so on and uh, try and make a bit of a show of it for them. I mean, <laughs> whenever there's a song take whenever there's a song taking place in the book, I will sing the song. I asked Martin if he was comfortable in the German language. My German has got a lot better. I always start off giving a talk in German, and then there'll always be a German actor to do the German bits. I will English. At the end, we'll do Q and A in 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 German. But uh, it's I've learned more about Germany in the last in these last thanks to Bruno in these last few years, and indeed I've seen more of Germany than most Germans. I was surprised and moved by Martin's answer when I asked him the classic question I ask most authors. Looking back over your writing life at this stage of your career, if you were doing it all again, is there anything you would change? And if so, what? Well, I'd endeavoured to meet my wife earlier and to have been married to her for longer, I guess. I... Other than that, no, not really. I just think that like so many people of, of, of my generation who were born... World War Two, we had this sort of extraordinary era of growth and of public free education, and in Britain, free care. I mean, you, know, you, you, I was just so lucky in all of that. And then in my career, being in Moscow for you know for the end of the Cold War, and then Washington, and I am just so lucky in all the things I've been through, seen, and I, I think if I have to put anything on my gravestone, it'll be he didn't miss much. So when did Martin and Julia meet? Oh, well, we, we actually met, I can tell you the date, it was the 26th of February of 19, 1977. Uh, we got married in May of the following year, and we've been together ever since, so it's 41 years. And we've got two wonderful daughters, and Julia's been with me all the way in Moscow and in uh, in Washington and, uh, and in Brussels, and I don't know, it's just, uh, she's an extraordinary woman, and I still... I will never understand her. I just sort of admire her and go along with the flow. Hear the rest of our talk with Martin. Among other things, he explains how he came to write about the Perigord by tuning into his show on binge reading. Links to all of the episodes can be found in the show notes on thejoysofbingereading.com. Deanna Rayborn's motto in life and writing is expect the unexpected and her best-selling historical mysteries are the perfect expression of that. They are plotted with the intricacy of a symphony. Her Victorian series about butterfly hunter Veronica Speedwell is up to six books with a seventh due early this year. The obvious question though, why choose a butterfly hunter, a lepidopterist, try saying that quickly, as your central character. When I started really getting interested in Victoriana, right after I graduated from college, I, I was curious as to what the women were doing because I figured not all of them were sitting in the parlor pouring tea for the vicar. You know, they had to be doing something more interesting. And so I started reading and got very, very intrigued by the Victorian lady explorers. Uh, you know, this this kind of subset of women who packed up the petticoats and the parasols and set out to see the world. And a lot of times they were traveling places where European women had never been before. You know, when the when the men traveled, sometimes it was in the nature of scientific inquiry, but it was very often in the nature of we're going to proselytize or we're going to colonize. Mm. A lot of the time when women traveled, it was they wanted to learn or they wanted to escape. 
And so the more I read about them, the more fascinated uh, I became by them. And one in particular uh, was a lepidopterist, uh, a butterfly hunter by the name of Margaret Fountain. And the cool thing about butterfly hunting for Victorian women it, is it was considered a genteel occupation. It, it You could do it and almost be a lady, even though you were making money at it. And so Margaret was able to make a living hunting butterflies. And she hunted all around the world, uh, six continents hunting butterflies. And she was able to amass a, a, a gorgeous collection of them. And she kept journals on all of her travels. And after she uh, did this for about 50 years, she dropped dead on the island of Santo Domingo with her butterfly net in her hand. And she willed her diaries and her butterflies to a university in England. And after 70 years, they cracked her journals open and found out that Margaret had not just been hunting butterflies. Margaret had had lovers all over the world. And she wrote about it. She she had boyfriends everywhere. She had, um, you know, extramarital relationships. She had uh, relationships that were interracial, stuff that you just don't think of Victorian women is doing. Margaret was doing it. Margaret was writing about it. Uh, and, and, it and I was so intrigued by this that I knew if I was ever going to do a second Victorian series that I, I was absolutely going to kind of pay homage to Margaret and and make my Victorian heroine a lepidopterist. So that that's how Veronica Speedwell came to be a butterfly hunter. Um, is is as a as a love note to Margaret Fountain and as a thank you for all the the hours of uh, enjoyment I got from reading about her adventures. Deanna frequently gets asked for advice by beginner authors and her response is both down to earth and succinct. I, I get a fair number of people contacting me wanting advice on how to become a writer and how to get published. And so the first thing I used to, I used to send back this really, really long, very, very, very detailed message. And then I realized nobody ever followed through on it. Like literally not once did anybody ever follow through on it. And so I finally started telling people, you know what, finish the book first and then come back and I will tell you everything I know but you can't do anything till you have a finished book mm. because you absolutely can't. That's what separates people who like the idea of writing from people who actually are writers. You, you know, the starting, the bright, the new, the shiny, Oh God, that's the fun part. When you get to fall in love with a new idea and you're, you know, it's, you're infatuated with these new characters and you get to create a new world. And so you get to play God for a little while that is intoxicating, but you can't stay there. Because if you do, you never get through to the end. Other, you just keep starting new projects. And that's fine because that there's nothing wrong with doing that as a hobby. But that will never be a profession unless you learn how to be a closer. Yeah. I think people get so hung up on the idea of, oh, it's got to be good, that they don't focus on the fact that it has to be done. It, it needs to be done and crap before it can be done and good. Mm. And that's the whole point mm. is let it be crap, just finish it. And then at that point, you can rewrite it until the cows come home and you can make it so much better because the, all that pressure is off as to whether you can do that book because you've done that book. Now you're just, you know, you've built that skeleton. Now you're just putting on the flesh. Now you're dressing it. Now you're putting on a party hat. 
Yeah. Because you've done the hardest part. You've gotten through to the end. And it took me a long time to get really comfortable with rewriting and to enjoy revisions. And now I do. Now I really love it. It's actually one of my favorite things to go in and tear apart a book and say, aha, I see where you're soggy or I see where you're not working and rip it all apart and stitch it back together and make a Franken book out of it. S.W. Hubbard's twisty, edgy domestic thrillers are favorites with readers who also enjoy her complex characters and sly humor. S.W., she doesn't mind being called Sue, explained why she is drawn to the mystery genre, and she's done some deep thinking on it. Mysteries help us to sort of explore the dark side of ourselves and help us to deal with our fears, I think. And then in the end, usually justice is served. And so the world comes around and is restored to uh, rightness again. So uh, that's that's what appeals to me. And I always try I always try to take the crime in my books very seriously. I don't think there's anything funny about murder, <laughs> but I do think that every one of us is capable, possibly, of committing a violent act if something that we love or care about is threatened. So that's what I try to explore in my books. What would drive average people to commit a crime. I never write about serial killers or, you know, people who are, you know, assassins or hitmen or professional uh, criminals in any way. I always write about just average people who are driven to do something extraordinary in the course of their of their lives. <laughs> sure. Sue has seen the best of publishing, starting out with a contract for three books with a major publisher, Simon & Schuster, and then moving on into indie publishing after Simon & Schuster cancelled their mystery line. She explains what happened. When I was first accepted by Simon & Schuster, I thought, you know, it was a dream come true. It was like, uh, you know, my ship had come in and I wrote three books for them. And then uh, they decided to cancel their mystery line. And so I was out of luck. I didn't have a contract anymore. I was not renewed. And I thought, well, you know, how hard could it be? I'll just move to a different publisher. But it turned out to be extremely challenging. It was just as hard to try to get published again by a traditional publisher the second time as it had been the first time. And I wrote Another Man's Treasure, which is the first book in the uh, estate sale series. And my uh, agent just loved it. And she sent it around to every publisher in New York. And they all, I got great responses and, and the, you know, the low level editor would read it and say, oh, I love it. I love it. And then it would have to go up the food chain to the highest, you know, editors in the, in the publishing house. And somehow it would work its way all the way up. And then they would say, no, you know, they would pass on it. So I was really devastated when it didn't sell. And uh, my agent said, well, you know, just, uh, you know, put it in a drawer and write something else. And I was like, no way, you know, I'm not going to just throw this away. Everyone said it was good. No one said that they didn't like it, you know. So I said, well, I'm going to, I'm going to self-publish it. And she said, oh, that'll never work. And <laughs> she, she lived to regret those words because <laughs> I, um, I did, you know, certainly I, I made a lot of mistakes along the way, but I taught myself the ins and outs of self-publishing and, um, 
I really love it. I love uh, I love driving my own bus. You know, I love doing the marketing and uh, I love being in control. And so it's turned out really, really well for me. So it's definitely a case of uh, one door closing and another door opening. Hazel Gaynor's best-selling historical novels take famous events and look at how they affected the lives of the little people. The book that we discussed in this episode, her eighth one, called Meet Me in Monaco, does just that with the events surrounding Grace Kelly's marriage to Prince Rainier. I asked Hazel about a quote in the book where Grace is said to have said, I avoid looking back. I prefer good memories to regrets. Was she hinting at the fact that she had regrets but was choosing to ignore them? Or was that more about the overall theme of the story? A little bit of both, really. I mean, Grace really acts, we've we've talked about this and said she really acts as sort of a fairy godmother in the book. And it's how her romance and all of the media circus that surrounded that wedding, how that impacted on other people who would otherwise not have been in any way associated with the royal family or a princess to be. And as I said, you know, this was one of the first sort of global media celebrity couples. And as we see exactly the same today, the newspapers could not get enough of them. And of course, where there's love, where they will always follow gossip, speculation, are they really as happy? Is she really giving up her, her fabulous acting career to marry this sort of really curious man who nobody knew much about. So it was really interesting. There's lots of, she was a very quotable woman. She was a very complex woman, you know, much more than perhaps she's been given credit for in terms of the charitable work she did and and how important her role as a princess was to her. But yeah, it, it really opened up that whole sort of avenue of, missed opportunities, those sliding doors, moments in life that mean we're in just the right place at just the right time or or not? And do we live with regret or are we content with the decisions we've made? So yeah, we did an awful lot of research. There are certainly some schools of thought that would say she had a very unhappy marriage. And there are others, we read books, for example, written by one of her bridesmaids, a very dear friend who said she was very much in love. And of course, all marriages have problems and challenges. And she was very aware of that. So, yeah, she she was a really fascinating woman to inspire a book around. I asked Hazel, who lives in Ireland, about her first book, an ambitious undertaking for a debut author based on historical fact, about a group of Irish passengers who were booked in steerage on the Titanic, publication coincided with the 100th anniversary of the ship going down. I was about 14, 15 years old when the wreck was found. And suddenly this footage of this iconic ship and a child's toy and a, and a boot and a plate and a saucer, it suddenly humanised the whole thing. And I was very, very interested in it. And just, I suppose, my my novelist's gaze started to wander. And I I just thought to myself one day, you know, I could write a book about the Titanic, but then I thought, no, you can't, that's ridiculous. <laughs> that's terrifying. It's far too uh-huh. enormous an event and too tragic. And how would I even do that? But anyway, I think sometimes an idea finds you um, rather than you finding the idea. And living in Ireland, I 
understood obviously the the boat was built in Belfast and its last port of call before it set off across the Atlantic was um, in County Cork. So I started to look into who were the Irish and obviously they were the least wealthy, most of them, and so they would have been in steerage, which had the greatest loss of life. So I started to research the Irish passengers on the Titanic and that was what again led me to this, this nugget of what I felt was a relatively untold story of the Titanic. We, we associate it with the very wealthy, with the Astors and the Strausses and the, the finery of first-class accommodation. And I found a story of a group of 14 friends and family from County Mayo who traveled together. And it was their story. Although I didn't use real names, I fictionalized and amalgamated some of those people into my version of, of their experience um, sailing together on the Titanic and what happened to them. So when I'd started to research and write, I hadn't actually realized that 2012 would be the centenary. So it was a very fortunate coming together, the stars aligning, if you like, and really did give me the the extra impetus to, to write that book and put it out there. I originally self-published it and that subsequently led to it being noticed by the person who's now my agent and represents me. And that then led to my publishing deal with HarperCollins, who I've been with ever since. Best-selling, much-beloved crime fiction author J.A. Jance has made a career of feisty, independent female leads, and they've become international reader favourites. J.A. says her first 1,400-page manuscript, yes, that's right, 1,400 pages, was triggered by the intense experience of having her first husband meet up with a serial killer. We've covered this in the Best of 2021 episode, so tune in there for more details. But this is what happened next. Jack Lyons, who was Pima County's chief homicide investigator at the time, came to our house and he interviewed my husband from 6 o'clock in the morning until 3.30 in the afternoon. And I, I listened to that whole interview. And when I went to write that first book, the one that was never published, <laughs> I could recall that interview almost verbatim. That's one of the reasons <laughs> the book was so long. and It's one of the reasons the book never sold. <laughs> I thinly fictionalized the story. But the editors who turned it down said the stuff that was fiction was fine. And the stuff that was real would never happen, even though it already had. So, yes, the editor said this couldn't possibly happen. But in the process of writing 1,400 pages, I wasn't allowed in the creative writing program at the University of Arizona in 1964 because, as the professor told me, I was a girl. So writing those 1,400 pages was my on-the-job training in writing. And writing 1,400 pages is the same as writing three full-length novels. And so in doing that, I learned how to do pacing. I learned how to do plotting. I learned how to do uh, scene setting. I learned how to do dialogue. I learned all of those skills that you have to become a writer. And the use of her pen name, J.A. Jance, on her first book, Until Proven Guilty, I asked Judith about that. How did that come about? When I gave my agent the manuscript for Until Proven Guilty, the uh, title page said Until Proven Guilty by Judith A. Jans, Judith Ann Jans. My agent had worked in New York publishing and she understood the dynamics of how 
female authors were viewed. And so before she sent that manuscript to New York, she changed the title page to read Until Proven Guilty by J.A. Jans. The second editor who saw that manuscript called her up and said, boy, the guy who wrote Until Proven Guilty is a good writer. And she said, what would you say if I told you the guy who wrote Until Proven Guilty is a woman? He said, I'd say she was a hell of a good writer. So he he bought Until Proven Guilty as the first book in a series. I thought I had written a standalone. I had no idea it was a series. And so they bought it. Time passed. Marketing got a hold of it. And they said, wait a minute. Wait, 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 wait. Male readers are not going to accept a police procedural written by somebody named Judy. We're going to use your initials. Well, I'm from a small mining town in Arizona. I was being published by a New York publishing house. I didn't care if they used my initials. So I said, fine. And that's how J.A. Jans came into existence. For the first nine Beaumont books, there was no author bio. There was no author photo. And that gave rise to the rumor that a retired Seattle homicide cop writes these books. When they started putting my picture on the books, I thought they would change. That rumor would change. It did, but only slightly. They said J.A. Jantz is a retired homicide cop and she's just a front for him. Well, I, I have fans who removed, once, once the cover photo was there, that sort of took away the mystery. But they had husbands who didn't read books by women authors. And so they took the cover off and gave them to them and they read it anyway. <laughs> Jay reckons one thing that's helped her become a writer is her birthplace in the family lineup. Here she is telling us all about it. One thing that is really important in my becoming a writer is my birth order. I'm from a family of seven children. My two older sisters, Janice and Jeannie, were two years apart. And then there was a four-year gap and I came along. And then after me, there was another four-year gap before my three brothers and my baby sister came along. And what that meant is in this family of seven kids, I was sort of an only child because I was too young to play with the older kids and too old to play with the younger ones. And that turned me into an observer as opposed to a participant. And being an observer is another important skill for someone who wants to be a writer because I've gone through life, picking up details, observing details that I've been able to put into my books. We're taking a quick break from binge reading the best of all time top 10. When we come back, romance author Lucinda Brandt. If you enjoy this roundup and would like to support the show, become a Binge Reading on Patreon supporter. We'll give you exclusive bonus content every week, like our Getting to Know You 5 Quick Fire Questions with our featured authors and a monthly behind-the-scenes newsletter with forward news about who's coming up on the show. All of that for as little as a cup of coffee a month. The time I give to the show in sourcing guests and researching their books is still free. Become a Patreon supporter today by going to www.patreon.com that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n.com forward slash the joys of binge reading. But now we're back with best of all time binge readings top 10 with Lucinda Brandt. 
award-winning author Lucinda Brandt fell in love with the 18th century as an 11-year-old when she picked up a dusty old historical tome, started reading about a world she felt she'd once lived in, quite eerie. Fast forward a decade or two and she's writing international bestsellers and running a popular Pinterest account reflecting the fashions, art and artefacts of the 18th century. The internationally best-selling Roxton series and the book Midnight Marriage is based on a remarkable story founded on historical fact. I asked Lucinda to elaborate for us. Well, I read Stella Tilliard's book Aristocrats, which was based um, on the Lennox family, which is the first Duke of Richmond was the son of was an illegitimate son of Charles II, and his son was married off to, I think, to settle his father a gambling debt, and he was just brought into a room. And this girl, who I think she was twelve, because that was the age of um, the consent that girls could marry, and they were married off there and then. Uh, the gambling debt was settled um, and she was sent back to the nursery and the boy was sent off on the grand tour. And I thought, well, here, here, this is a fantastic story. Um, Then what happened, he returned from the grand tour, was at the theatre, saw a girl uh, across the theatre in a box and thought, oh, you know, she looks very nice. I want to be introduced to her. Um, Can someone tell me her name? And someone said, well, actually, um, that's your wife. A reviewer has commented that Lucinda's books give the golden age of romance a modern voice. Does she see it that way? I suppose the golden age of romance for me was like the high Victorians like Anthony Trollope and Leo Tolstoy, there was this, the, the setting itself for the books is just as important as probably the characters and the events that were, were going on in the stories. So it, it's, that's to me, like there's a, a lot of characters, there's, there's events, there's this, the big sweeping historical setting. So to me that's sort of, like the golden age of romance. As for the modern voice, well, we all write probably to our to our time period in in a way. I mean, Georgette Heyer, although she wrote Regencies, she had a very much an Edwardian mindset when she was writing those. So we are a product of our times. So me, you know, the, you know, tw- late. 20th century sort of mindset, I suppose, I I bring to the stories even though I'm trying to write them as historically accurate as possible. Stephen King called international crime writer Michael Robotham an absolute master, so it's no surprise that he sold millions of books all around the world. His first thriller, The Suspect, was snapped up in more than 20 countries in just three hours, and the superlatives have kept on rolling in ever since. But Michael's life started on a totally different plane. He grew up in country towns in Australia where he said there were more dogs than people and more flies than dogs. Then he talked his way into a cadetship on a Sydney daily and went on to a stellar career in journalism before he began writing books, first as a ghostwriter for famous people's stories. Here's Michael. 
I'd never lost my desire to be a writer, uh, to be a novelist. But I guess what happened was, you know, when you're very young and that confidence and bravado that I had is very much a sign of, of, of the arrogance of youth, you know, uh, when you think you're bulletproof and you think you're God's gift to writing. And I thought all of those things. You know, as a journalist, you know, I, I worked with some of the great journalists and I realised how good they were compared to me and I tried to get better all the time. But when I, I reached the point in journalism, you know, in the UK where, you know, they owned you, they paid you well and you travelled the world, but you couldn't have a relationship or a family because you didn't know from one day to the next whether you'd be in Russia or America or India. I mean, you very sounds very exciting, but you can't make a plan. And, and so I sort of thought I'd go as far and as fast as I could, but by the age of 35, I didn't want to be an editor. I wanted to be, I, you know, I loved writing too much. I, I thought I'll, I'll, try, I'll get out by 35. I'll try my hand at writing. And what happened, of course, I was acting features editor of the Mail on Sunday in London and a young guy came in who was a ghostwriter and I very naively, I'd never heard of a ghostwriter, and so he was penning, helping pen celebrity memoirs and autobiographies and he, he worked on things like Robert Swan, the polar ice walker, explorer and... Simon Weston, the Falklands hero, that was very badly burned in the Falklands War. And I became fascinated with this idea of ghostwriting because I suddenly thought, okay, do I really have the patience to sit and write long form? Could I spend six to 12 months or longer writing just the one thing when I'd grown up for the previous 10, 12, 14 years um, doing something different every day? And I guess ghostwriting was the next step along where I, I was offered an opportunity to ghostwrite and I decided to put journalism aside and for the next 10 years I was a ghostwriter. Then The Suspect, his first thriller, was in such big demand from several different publishers that it went up for auction. Here's Michael telling us how that happened. If you tried to arrange it, you couldn't have done it because I was in between ghostwriting projects. So I had... Uh, for my sins, I'd just finished working with Rolf Harris, obviously before all of the Rolf Harris thing blew up, and I'd been asked to write Lulu's autobiography, you know, the 60s pop star Lulu, you know, famous for To Serve With Love. And I had a window of about three months between those two projects, and, and I sat down and I wrote 117 pages of a book that became a suspect. And I showed it to my agent because I didn't want to have to finish it if no one wanted it. And I thought, well, I've now got a family and a mortgage and I can't afford to, to write for nothing. And ghostwriting was making me a good living. So I showed it to him and said, look, should I finish this? You know, and he said, oh, yeah, definitely finish it. You know, he said, I think a lot of people will want to buy this. I said, can you not sell it now so I know that they want to buy it rather than me spending 12 months? <laughs> I know that sounds very naive. And he said, no, 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 finish it, finish it. You know, So I put it aside and then... I was having lunch with a UK publisher to discuss the Lulu project and she said, what are you working on? And I told her just one chapter of The Suspect, just one little story, and I could see the hair on her arms just sort of raise and she said, I have to read the 117 pages. And I said, well, you're not allowed to. And she badgered my agent for two weeks and finally he gave it to her and she read it on a flight to Australia, oddly enough. And she landed and she rang up. And I had a very modest figure in my head of what I would need to, 
to give ghostwriting away for, for a year to finish the book. And she offered three times that amount. And the same agent that said finish it was saying take the money. <laughs> and, and news of that offer leaked at the London Book Fair, again, I don't know how, uh, in February 2002. So this is, this is about five months later. And suddenly there was this feeding frenzy because the more publishers were told they couldn't read the 117 pages, the more they demanded to read it. And it got to the point that they were offering money to my agent just to read the 117 pages. And I was sitting, living back in Australia, and at 3 o'clock in the morning the phone was ringing and my agent was, he was literally in the back of taxis, you know, doing deals saying there are seven French publishers bidding, there are five German publishers bidding and four American publishers are bidding and the Spanish have offered this and the Portuguese. And it sold into more than 20 translations in three hours every dream I'd ever had of being a full-time writer, and I dreamed of being a novelist since I was 11 years old, it came true in that three hours. Fiona Valpy's French romances are like a glass of wine in French sunshine, a perfect summer and pandemic escape. But she writes more than simple romance. Her best-selling World War II fiction tells stories of remarkable women generations apart who use adversity to their advantage and find resilience deep in their souls. I asked Fiona what drew her to specifically place her stories in France. It was definitely finding a new home in France for those seven years. You know, the the inspiration for romance is just everywhere in France. It's, It's all around you. It's such a beautiful country. And the food, the wine, everything, the countryside, it, it all feeds in. There's, there's also the sort of joie de vivre of the, of the people that live there, you know, their very own French sense of humour. It was, that was really the romance side. It was just there all around me. And then also actually, in terms of World War Two, the location of the home that we bought we didn't know really know it at the time. It wasn't something I was that aware, aware of, but it was right in the area where the demarcation line was between German-occupied France and Vichy France. And so, you know, the so-called um, unoccupied part of France for the first couple of years of the World War, Second World War. So as I kind of delved below the surface a little more, these extraordinary tales of resistance, of people's wartime experiences, and of the resilience that those people had to show, those started to come out quite slowly because people are always still these days reluctant to to talk about those, those awful years. But I think being on that line of connection between occupied and unoccupied France meant that there was in an increase in the resistance activity inevitably along that line. And so the stories I heard I was started to hear as I made friends with, with French people locally, you know, those stories that started to come out were quite extraordinary. And I just felt these these stories need to be told. And especially they need to be told now because that generation is is dying out. You know, there are, there are very few people now who actually lived through those war years. They're getting older. And so that kind of gave me the idea for combining the two, my love of the country and the beauty that surrounded me. But just beneath the surface, 
with this kind of, you know, dark undercurrent of the legacy of the war years. Fiona's book, The Dressmaker's Gift, makes it clear how the Nazis valued the couture sector in France. They enjoyed privileged status, didn't they? No, I mean, that's just, you know, one of those extraordinary things. It was a fact that I, that I sort of unearthed during my research that food was really strictly rationed. You know, the French, the French people were literally starving and any surplus food tended to be diverted to, to the German front anyway to support their war effort. So, so the French people were literally starving, but buttons and braid were not rationed. You know, it's it's mm-hmm. just so bizarre because the Germans prioritised the couture industry and the, the French Vichy government also wanted to go along with that. You know, I think it became a sort of almost a an emblem of the French, that French, that France hadn't completely been defeated. You know, they sort of took a pride in their couture industry. So it, it suited, for, I mean, obviously the, the Vichy government, that's a whole other can of worms there but uh you know because they were they were put in place by the the nazi occupiers so obviously they were going to go along with what the germans were saying but it did suit the french as well to to sort of have this couture industry still open for business as a as a kind of world flagship so it was it's you know like everything it's more complicated it's never black and white but yeah, it was just so extraordinary. The, the the dressmakers who were working on these amazing couture creations were yes. starving. Yeah. LB Hathaway's Posy Parker Mysteries are Amazon bestsellers, and that's not surprising because they combined the charm of the classic Golden Age country house mystery straight out of the Agatha Christie set with the glamour and excitement of 1920s London. LB, otherwise known as Lily, had a chance to try her hand at fiction. When things changed in her life, there was a hiatus in her work as a London lawyer, and she had the chance to try her hand at fiction. She didn't let it go. She seized that opportunity, and she explains how that all happened. I think storytelling has always been really important to me, like since I was a child. I always did write fiction, you know, little bits here and there, poetry, um, short stories, I never thought I could be a fiction writer as my career, you know, to come earn money. And so I studied hard and I became a lawyer and I spent my 20s doing that. The once upon a time moment didn't happen. It was more of kind of, it was a a catalyst in my own life. It was was an odd time. So I had met my husband and we moved to Switzerland and I had resigned from my job as a lawyer in the UK in London. And I was starting to look for other jobs in Switzerland. And I had this time, this period of time, this kind of bubble ahead of me. And um, it was a real gift, actually. It was the first time I had um, not been working or studying in pretty much my whole life. And I decided in that time that it was the time to write a book. And um, actually, I wrote two books pretty much one after the other. And they became the first two Posey Parker novels. So it kind of came out, it came out of a, a break, a career break in a way. And what happened was that the Posey Parker series really took off and I never did have to look for that sort of job as a lawyer again. And I also, I I had my first child actually about a year later. So then I became a full-time mum as well um, and started to balance and juggle the two together. (laughs) 
And the Posey Parker period, the 1920s, where you set your mystery series between the two world wars, what was particularly interesting to you about that period? What attracted you to it? For me, it's a fascinating time. It's always been a fascinating time. I suppose so I'm focused very much on London, I mean, um, on, on Britain, but mainly, mainly London in the Posey Parker novels. And it's such an interesting time, the 1920s, between the two wars. It's a real kind of, everything's, you know, it's a very hedonistic time for fashion and for, for music. There are people, you know, dancing to jazz on tables at the Café de Paris. It's a great time, but at the same time, it's a terrible time. There's evidence of the war everywhere. There's sort of men sitting on every street corner in London begging back from the war. You know, there's no one looking after them. I think exploring a very strong female character is interesting, putting her in a 1920s context as well, because it's a really interesting time for, for women. All these men have died, and there's a lost generation of women as well, women who might have been wanting to get married or get engaged, or have gone down that path, suddenly find themselves having to reinvent themselves as single women, having to get a job, maybe for the first time, or to carry on with the job that they had taken on in World War One. And it's a time when women are fighting for equal pay in, in the UK, and they're fighting for the right to vote. So I think it's a really interesting time for, for putting a female character sort of placing a female character there. I wanted to put Posey Parker there. I wanted to explore a character who was facing all of that, but not just facing that, like facing that and really thriving as well. Anne Hilleman had some very big shoes to fill when she stepped up to continue her father, Tony Hilleman's much-loved Joe and Jim Navajo series. Tony was a legend. His obituary in the New York Times noted that he was a rare figure, a best-selling author who was adored by his fans, admired by his fellow authors, and respected by critics. But Anne has assumed her father's mantle, written five more Navajo mysteries, which are all New York Times bestsellers. However, she never planned it that way. She explains... My father started the uh, mystery series that people have, have loved for a long time uh, 50 years ago. It was, he came up with the character of Joe Lee Porn, Navajo detective. And in that first book, uh, really his, he hadn't intended to write a series about, about the, the Navajo Indians. He had always loved mysteries. And so his idea was that he would bring in this interesting character and do a setting that people weren't, weren't familiar with and that that would give his books a little, a little something different. And so uh, The Blessing Way uh, came out in uh, March 11th of 1970, 20, 70, uh, 50 years ago. And I mean, it's amazing. Three, three of his books were turned into movies. He won many, many prizes for his mystery writing. And, you know, at the time, I, I, I had always been a big reader and I loved my dad and I loved reading his stories, but I didn't quite realize what a, I guess, what an icon, I guess you could use that word, what an icon he was in the mystery world until after he died. And then I saw like that tribute you mentioned in the New York Times all over the mystery world. And I got so many letters from people saying, I feel like I've lost a member of my family. 
you know, we really loved your father and we loved his stories. My background was nonfiction. And so I had been working on a nonfiction book uh, about the places in the Navajo world that my father wrote about, places that he visited and loved. My husband and I, who's a, my husband's a professional photographer, he and I had spent, I guess, about two years traveling all through Navajo land, talking to people, taking photos. And so uh, I had, I was almost done with the book when my dad died. So uh, we finished, my husband and I finished the book. And a year after my father's death, the book was published. And my husband and I did a little book tour to libraries and bookstores. And we're talking about the book. And every time I would do the talk, the first or second or maybe third question would be, so are there any more books in the series? Was there something that your father was working on that was at the publisher? Something another editor could finish? A, you know, a collection of short stories. And I would say, no, sorry, my dad really took care of business before he died. And then the, the person asking the question would say, Oh, I love those characters. I love those stories. Oh no, this is the worst news I've ever heard. And I heard that I heard that longing for those stories so many times. And at the same time, of course, I was dealing with my own grief at my father's death. And after a while, it dawned on me that just like those fans, besides the missing my father, I was thinking, and no, how can it be that there will be no more Jim Chi, Joe Leaphorn stories? I can't, you know, this just isn't right. So I, I had never written a novel, but I thought, well, I could give it a try. And the worst thing that happens is that I use a few, use up a few years of my life and then I get it out of my system. So I guess that was, those things were kind of the combination that let, that led me uh, think maybe I could continue the series. Anne knew she couldn't be her father. So how did she put her own stamp on the series? Dad had this minor character who I always had had enjoyed, Bernadette Manuelito. And in his last book, Bernie has married Jim Chi. He doesn't show the, the wedding, but anyway, she's settled into that. And I think if my dad had written more books, he probably would have abandoned her to married life and babies and gone on with the two guys he loved. But I always thought she had more potential than just being the girlfriend who brings the coffee, the sweet young thing who has to get rescued. So my idea was that it was time for her to really become a full-fledged crime solver. So I thought in, with Spider-Woman's Daughter, I thought I need to come up with a, a really big crime if I'm going to introduce her as being on, on the same level as the boys, I need to come up with a big crime for her to solve. I did come up with what I thought was a pretty big crime for Bernie to solve. Bernadette Manuelito, she's known as Bernie. So anyway, she solves the crime. And in the process, she also manages to rescue her husband, Jim Chi, who gets caught up and, and uh, endangered by the bad guys. So... Yeah, and I wondered when I finished that book, I wondered, so dad's fans are so used to the guys being the ones who solve everything. What are they going to think about having a new girl who comes up and basically steals the spotlight in this book? 
But luckily, uh, my father's fans had big hearts and they took a chance on me and on Bernie and on Spider-Woman's daughter. That's it for today. If you enjoyed this episode of the best of all time for binge reading, celebrating our 200th episode, you might also enjoy the other best ofs, the best of 2021, the best of 2020. Check them out in the show notes and have a wander around. In February, we'll launch our 2022 shows with new interviews from Kate Longbrook, as well as appropriate for the month of St. Valentine's Day, chats with some best-selling romance authors, Jane Ann Quince, Barbara Freethy, and Susan May Warren. Subscribe to the show so you don't miss future episodes on thejoysofbingereading.com. And if you'd like to contribute to our production costs, consider supporting us on Binge Reading on Patreon and get bonus weekly content. Happy reading and see you next time.